When we talk about the Lord's grace, I don't know that there's a better um, term in the Bible for what we need. Grace is always undeserved. Grace never makes sense, ever. Grace is always something that comes in that shouldn't happen, but that happens out of mercy. The passage that we look at tonight has a lot to do with grace and mercy, and it's some of the most, we might call it scandalous words in the New Testament because when we read them, we think, well, how in the world are we supposed to put that into practice? But we look tonight uh, at a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 6. If you got your Bibles, if you don't have them open yet, that's where we're going to be. Luke chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 17 in just a moment. And, uh, and we're going to dive into that tonight. And so as you get a chance to see the calling of Christ into our life in the areas where we say, wow, how in the world am I supposed to do that? Be encouraged because everything that you will read, Christ has done for us. And so there will be no, that's impossible. And we will never attain what, what, um, what, what, he will, what he has done for us, but that's our goal. Our goal is Christ-likeness and to do all that we can to mirror what he's called us to. Luke chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 17. We're going to read just to verse 19, and we're going to say a word of prayer tonight. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Let's pray together. Father, tonight, thank you for a chance to marvel at the Lord Jesus, to learn from his example, to be challenged, encouraged, propelled by him to where you would call us. And so, Father, we thank you for a chance to celebrate this great reality and to sing together that we are no longer slaves to fear because we're children of God. And the fact that on our darkest nights of the soul, from the every day in the mundane to the wedding day and the graveside weeping, that you, where you are, find us in your grace. And we thank you and praise you for that. And so, Lord, tonight, as you challenge our hearts and our lives, would you speak tenderly about how Jesus Christ has done more than we could ever imagine or understand on our behalf. We thank you, Father. We commit this time to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. So we've got seven things tonight on your list, seven words. If you're writing the words down or if you're here and your wife's writing them down for you and you're going to get her paper later, either way, whatever you got to do, we got seven words to get tonight. And so I'm going to go ahead and dive right into the first one. Uh, and, this, and that's this, Jesus didn't have just one type of person following him. Everyone was coming out to see, hear, and be in, impacted by him. Jesus didn't have just one type of person following him. I remember when I was in about high school, I learned that there were multiple crowds of Southern gospel music. Did y'all know this? That there's different streams, there's different tributaries of Southern gospel music. Now, not everybody even likes Southern gospel music. You might like contemporary Christian, or you might like more traditional, or whatever it might be. But in, even in Southern gospel, I found there were different tributaries. Uh, there was the, you know, the Gaithers. If you went for them, there was the Gaither type people who followed the Gaithers around. And then there was the sort of unknown Southern gospel people who showed up at the local high school auditorium in pinstripe suits, and they had their crowd. And the crowd that followed the local people in the pinstripe 
striped suits didn't always take too kindly to what Bill Gaither and some of them were doing and, you know, kind of their big realm. And you sort of got used to in different places. You ever gone somewhere and you asked yourself the question, wonder what type of people we're going to see tonight? If you've been to see somebody who perhaps is a certain uh, of political persuasion, if you've been to see somebody who's an influencer of culture in some way, somebody who's a salesman, a speaker, you sort of start watching and all of a sudden coming through the door is the same type of people in the same type of outfits and the same type of backgrounds. And you look out in the parking lot and it looks like a car dealership because they're all driving the same range of vehicle out there. You know what I'm talking about? There's a type. And for most of us, the best we can ever do in drawing a crowd is our type or the type that's going to be interested in us. And the Lord Jesus, from the picture we see painted at the very beginning here, is there wasn't just one type. That's why the Pharisees couldn't stand that the tax collectors were standing over there in the crowd too. That you had women with questionable backgrounds and they're coming in, you know, and people know their reputation. And then you have, you know, all sorts of different in-betweens and everywhere, you know, from every side and, 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 and uh, region of Judea and, and Israel, you've got these people coming to the Lord Jesus. And he didn't just have one type that everyone was coming out to see him. Uh, let me show you a few pictures tonight. This is the traditional location for, uh, for what I, I think in Matthew's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in Bible college or seminary, you can have a discussion with somebody about whether the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is the same as the sermon we're going to read here in just a moment in Luke chapter 6. There's strong viewpoints on each side, but either way, this could have been, you know, the mountainside, the hilltop, the hillside uh, where Jesus had this. Another traditional location, this one looks more exciting to me for some reason, uh, is a place called the, uh, the Horns of Hatton, and that's here, Perhaps that's where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount uh, and or the sermon that we see here today. Uh, this is another location looking down from the traditional location. That looks like a good place to sit and listen to a sermon, doesn't it? You can have a picnic lunch out there and just enjoy it. I'm not sure you want to go here and you're hanging on for dear life to listen to a sermon, you know, on this cliff edge. Likewise, this is another location where they said perhaps this took place. In the end, the only people who really have strong opinions on this are people who like to have arguments or people who are trying to sell you something. At the end of the day, we just don't know exactly where it was. But you've got a map here of Israel that's hard to see, and I'm going to apologize for that. And uh, I don't have a laser pointer here either, but I just want to try to make a quick point. When you look here at Luke 6, it says, Jesus came down, stood on a level place with a great crowd and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem. You know where Judea and Jerusalem is? It's down here, the south side of Israel. So people from the varsity region of Israel are coming out to see the Lord Jesus and then it goes on to say, not only there, but all the regions of Tyre and Sidon. You know where Tyre and Sidon is? If I was Michael Jordan, I might could jump up there and show you, but it's way up there at the top left. Tyre and Sidon is just across the northern border, the northern reaches of Israel. And so Jesus, somewhere around the Sea of Galilee, which is sort of top center of your map there, somewhere in that region giving this sermon is drawing people from the northern boundaries and the southern boundaries. They're coming from all around to hear Jesus. They're traveling not only to hear him, but to get healed, uh, to be cleansed of un uh, unclean spirits. On and on and on, Jesus is drawing a great crowd. Jesus didn't have just one type of person following him. Everyone was coming out to see and hear and be impacted by Jesus. Aren't you thankful that the Lord Jesus has not called us all to the same haircut? 
and the same outfit and the same socioeconomic background and the same type of music we like and the same type of this and the same. Jesus has come for the wide, diverse body of the church, the people that he's called to himself. And we don't ever have to say, well, you know, people who follow Jesus, they're all just this cookie cutter type person. At times in our life, you, you may have had an experience where you felt like, well, I can't be a good Christian unless I look like so-and-so over here or act like so-and-so in this way. And over time, you might have thought, well, maybe that's not quite the best you know, viewpoint to have. Jesus has called us all into different uh, gifts, different strengths, different roles. Jesus didn't have just one type of person following him. Number two, this passage shows that while Jesus emptied himself of his glory, in taking human flesh, and he submitted leadership and guidance to his father, he was not simply a human prophet without a divine nature. Now, that's kind of a long point there. I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to see, figure out the best way I can to say it, that Jesus in this passage, you read verse 19, all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them. Uh, there are some who believe that when Jesus came to the earth and took on human flesh, that when Philippians chapter 2 talks about his emptying of himself, that he emptied himself of his divinity in order to come here and simply have the power, uh, the power of God channeled through him, but nothing of his own. I don't ascribe to that viewpoint. Uh, I believe that the Bible teaches in numerous ways that not only was Jesus fully man, but fully God, even in his divinity. And Colossians chapter 1 says that in him all things hold together. And that didn't have some time off where nobody was holding anything together in the time when Jesus uh, was here. That Jesus' power is being felt and understood and impacting the people uh, who are coming to see him. And so the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him. They're being healed of their diseases. There are demons that are being cast out. And then Jesus begins to speak. And the people listen. Who, who would not listen to somebody who's able to have that kind of power, right? And he dives into the passage that we read here in verse 20. As I said before, there are some that as you read this, you're going to say, well, that sounds an awful lot like the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And there are some who believe that this is from the same sermon. And there are others who believe that this is a different sermon. Now, I have to admit, I lean a little bit more towards the this was a different occasion, uh, but it could possibly be either one. You know, when Jesus spoke, there's a lot of words that he said that didn't get written down. Do you, do you realize that? That the gospel writers were giving summaries, they were giving quotes out of what was said, but it would not be uncommon in this time for Jesus to speak for hours. Some of you say, well, Lord, help me. Please don't do that here tonight. I, I won't. I won't. But he, he speaks for a very long time, and so it's very possible that in the same sermon, Jesus said both what was given in Matthew 5 as well as what's given here, and Luke and Matthew are called to give different shades of the same thing. Or it's also pop, uh, common or, or very possible that Jesus gave a very similar sermon in another location because they couldn't go on the website and listen to the audio from what Jesus shared before. And so he got to go in different places and he obviously would give very similar, if not the same teaching as he went around. I got asked to share a devotional for the HPCA golf tournament this weekend or on Friday. So I'm excited about that. There's two times that I get to share. And as I talked to uh, Coach Corey earlier this week, he said, well, I need you to share at 8.15 and at 1.15. And I said, well, is it the same crowd of people or different? Because you know what I was thinking? If it's different people, I've only got to prepare one devotional. 
If it's the same one, yeah, I got to figure out something a little bit different. And he said, well, there might be a few people who uh, are the same. And I thought, oh, well, okay, well, I have to just do two. But, uh, but, that, but that's fine. Yeah, so Jesus would have taught the same thing, uh, perhaps at different times. Regardless, it doesn't really matter too much for us. But when we come to the passage tonight, we see Jesus teaching and giving uh, a direction that sounds very similar, but at the same time has its own distinctives uh, from what is given in Matthew. So let me go ahead and say this right off the bat, because as we read this, if we're not careful, we'll miss the thrust of what Jesus is saying. So number three, wealth, food, and laughter are not the enemy. Jesus is simply saying that God's eternal plan for his children is the solution to the challenges in their lives. Wealth, food, and laughter are not the enemy. Aren't you thankful? Yeah, have you ever met somebody who their belief in Jesus seemed to make them think they weren't supposed to have fun and enjoy anything anymore? And uh, God hasn't called us to that, thankfully. So when Jesus speaks about the poor and the hungry and those who weep, he is not saying that that's the only option for his people, but he's saying for those who are dealing with that reality, the greater reality is that God has seen what they're walking through. He's active even in that, and his plan eternally is bigger than those temporary things that they're now facing. And so wealth, food, and laughter are not the enemy. Let's read here in verse uh, 20. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you. Spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Wealth, food, and laughter are not the enemy, but Jesus is simply saying that God's eternal plan for his children is a solution to the challenges in their lives. You might recognize in Matthew 5 as you're thinking through, well, when I think about Matthew chapter 5, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, and, and, and you get uh, this complex uh, sort of, well, was Jesus saying this or was he saying that? Well, he was saying both that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. And at the same time, those who find themselves facing hunger know that that's not a problem that is bigger than God's provision in their life and what God wants to do. And that the state that they are in now is not the eternal plan uh, that God has for his people. When you read the gospel of Luke, you see this real showing of the fact that in order to take hold of the Lord Jesus, there's got to be a letting go of all that we're holding on to in this world. There's a balance there. And so that doesn't mean that we have to sell all of our possessions, we can have nothing and we have to live in poverty, but it does mean that our heart and our hands want to cling on to things that God's calling us to let go of in order that he might reign supreme in our life. And so Jesus speaking about the deceitfulness of riches uh, says, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who are hungry, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Uh, Pastor Brandon's been leading us through Revelation where 
God's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Uh, that weeping is not an eternal reality. That those who weep now are not going to weep forever if they're in Christ. Number four, likewise, those who have placed their hope in wealth, food, and merriment at the expense of others or out of the will of God will not find lasting peace. Those who have placed their hope in wealth, food, and merriment at the expense of others or out of the will of God will not find lasting peace. You read Luke's gospel and you come in chapter 16 to the story of a rich man in Lazarus that Jesus tells. And you've got this comparison of a poor man who sat outside of the rich man's gates, this, this Lazarus who the dogs would lick his sores and he's just in terrible state. And then you've got the rich man and Jesus says he was dressed in purple and fine linen and you get this just, uh, w when you do the sort of math of the day, this meant somebody who just was incredibly, incredibly wealthy and lavishly wasted his money instead of caring for the people who are around him. You come to Luke 18 and you come to the rich young ruler who says, uh, if I've got to give away things, I'm not willing to follow you, Jesus. But then you come to Luke 19 and what do you see? You see a wee little man who goes running down the road and climbs a sycamore tree because he wants to meet Jesus. And Jesus says what is impossible with man is possible with God. So the enemy is not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil, right? And so the driving force that's pulling so many of them down uh, is that. Now we uh, are a little bit different in our culture because we live in a country that has a middle class. You could even say our country probably has several middle classes in between the poor and the wealthy. For much of the ancient world, there was only two classes of people. There were the poor, 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 and there were the rich, rich, rich. And so those who had a great deal were often incredibly disconnected from those who were just the regular people those who were out of the range of this. And so you had two distinct classes of people that didn't cross paths with each other. And often those who had gotten their wealth in such large ways had done so at the expense of others. That can happen in our world as well. But it's a distinction uh, where character had also all, uh, sometimes played a big role in that. You know, it's possible in our day and time for there to be people who are in poverty, who are obsessed with money, who are greedy, who are consumed with the desire for wealth and consumed in such a way that Christ finds no foothold in their life. At the same time, there are people who God has blessed greatly, and I think part of the reason that God's blessed them greatly is they're going to be faithful in what God has given them. And so the enemy is not, well, if you're this wealthy or not this wealthy, uh, but Jesus talking about this, that those who place their hope in these things will not find lasting peace. Number five, facing rejection and criticism is a difficult thing. If you want to, you can write, duh, Jonathan, in the margins. <laughs> Probably doesn't even need to be said, but even Jesus talks about this as a tough reality. Facing rejection and criticism is a difficult thing. When we're facing it because of faithfulness to Jesus, we are in good company. When we're facing it because of faithfulness to Jesus, we're in good company. This is the traditional location of the tomb of Isaiah, the prophet, where the book of Isaiah comes from in our Bibles. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was executed by Manasseh, Hezekiah's evil son who became king. And he was sawn in half. Now that's not in the Bible, we don't know that for sure, but that's what Jewish historical tradition uh, has, has 
said to believe. So for, for all of what we see, the contri- contributions of Isaiah to Scripture, it's very possible that he was murdered by a king who had a godly father who, in complete opposite of what his life was, Manasseh chose to do evil that the Bible says was unlike anything that had come before. And there were people at the time who were willing to sing Manasseh's praises. There were people at the time who were willing to say bad things aren't going to happen to the nation of Israel. And everybody loved the ones who gave good news, right? Remember what King Ahab said to Elijah when he saw him? Uh, how, how are you doing, you troubler of Israel? Great to see you. They, they, they didn't like each other because, I, uh, excuse me, uh, Ahab didn't like Elijah because Elijah always had to give him bad news because of Ahab's character and life. And so when we find ourselves facing difficulty because of faithfulness to Jesus, we're in a good place. We really are. Now, sometimes we can think we're really on Jesus's cause and we're not. And the reason we're facing criticism or rejection is because we're doing something wrong. Now, it's very possible for us to be in that realm. Have you ever known anybody who just seemed as long as they were making people mad, they must be doing something right? You ever met any Christians like that? I'm just trying to make as many people mad as I can. I don't think that's our calling. We don't have to try to make people upset. But Jesus said, you know what? When you've honored me and that's brought you trouble, you should rejoice because you're in good company. Because the people who hated me hated the true prophets, those who truly followed God. But the people who love me, they were the ones who followed those who were speaking the truth. Number six, love and mercy to those who are against us is one of the things that God has promised to bless in a special way. Love and mercy to those who are against us is one of the things that God has promised to bless in a special way. Let's keep reading. The last section I want to look at tonight begins in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them." If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. When I was a kid, one of the movies I remember seeing was one of these old biblical epics from the 1960s called Demetrius and the Gladiators. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. It was one of my favorites as a kid. Uh, It's a sequel to a movie called The Robe, but that was more popular. Uh, But if you've ever seen either one of those movies, Victor Mature plays a gladiator who comes to faith in Christ. And, or a slave, rather, who becomes a gladiator after being uh, thrown into the, the gladiatorial arena. But Demetrius, is his name, uh, is a believer when all of a sudden the other gladiators find out that he is a Christian. Now, they don't know a whole lot about Christians, but they have heard about this strange thing that Jesus said about striking someone on the cheek and having them turn to the other also. 
And so Demetrius is sitting at a dinner table one night when all of a sudden, one of the gladiators, the one that you're sort of trained to not like as you watch the movie, walks up to him and said, I heard you're a Christian and there's something I've always wanted to find out. And he took his hand and just smacked him across the face as hard as he could and Victor Mature fell onto the ground. He started to get up and his old, you know, instincts came to him and he got ready to go after him when all of a sudden he stopped himself. And he said, well, are you going to turn the other cheek? And you can see the decision raging in Demetrius' mind. All of a sudden, this African gladiator named Glycon comes up and he looks at this, you know, bad guy, takes his backhand and smacks him all the way across the table onto the floor. And he said, leave this man alone. I'll tell you one thing, I am no Christian. <laughs> so if you're going to follow the Bible, it pays, you know, it's good to have somebody around who hadn't gotten there yet, you know, to defend you. But the movie's a really neat movie about, you know, just the glycon even comes to faith. And for Hollywood, even though that many years ago, when you look backwards, you know, at the time, it probably didn't seem like they were following some things as well. But looking backward now, it's like, well, in comparison to 2022, there's so many things that were shown in that movie that I thought they really got right about the grace uh, and mercy of Jesus. But we, we come to phrases like this, and I was even reading in commentaries today, and they begin to walk through things like, well, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, was he meaning just simply a simple slap that was, a, you know, getting into a duel that wasn't too heavy, or is the word jaw, and what that really means is a strong hit across the jaw. That's what we want to do, don't we? We want to figure out exactly where the line is for where we get to fight back. When do people cross what we're being asked to do? And Jesus gives a couple paragraphs that just, in essence, are far above anything we think is normal to do. But we see that the Lord Jesus has walked that road on our behalf, hasn't he? Because no one will ever wound us in such a heavy way as we wounded the Lord Jesus. And in that, Christ's response of mercy uh, is shown to us. Love and mercy to those who are against us is one of the things that God has promised to bless in a special way. Uh, there's a really popular movie and slash story. You, many of you probably read it in school. It's been around for a little while. And it sort of states that even the world understands this concept. It's a story called Les Miserables. I'm not going to try to pronounce it with a true French accent because that'll just make it worse. But you might know the story somewhat of uh, Jean Valjean, who is a, uh, a thief who gets convicted and then has this kind of hardening that takes place when he's in prison. As he gets out, he's poor. And so he decides to steal silverware the silver from uh, the priest who is there who's allowed him to stay in his home. In the version that uh, this picture is shown, he actually even strikes the priest to knock him down while he's stealing from him in the middle of the night. Well, Jean Valjean is rounded up by the authorities who think it's strange that this poor man who looks so rough is carrying around a bag of priestly silverware, and they bring him back to the priest, and they say, we found this man with your silverware, and we thought we'd bring him back. Has he had permission to take this? And the priest looks up at Jean Valjean and he says, why, yes, of course, why didn't you take the silver candlesticks as well? And he calls the nun to go and get those and he loads them up and he gives Jean Valjean the bag and this moment changes Jean's life because for the first time he's been shown grace and mercy. Mercy's not getting what you deserve, grace is being given what you don't deserve. And he walked out of there, not only a free man that day, but he walked with a bag full of silver that allowed him to restart his life. 
And this priest said something to him of the effect of saying, with this silver I have purchased your freedom before God, that I've drawn you back in to realizing that God's grace has found you. And so now this mercy can change your life. You know, people respond in mighty ways to mercy being shown. There, there was a, a missionary named Henry Richards who was working uh, with a native people called the Bonza Mateki. And he was translating the gospel of Luke chapter by chapter into their language. And as they got it into their language, he was really concerned about what was going to happen when he translated Luke chapter 6. He said, oh no, what am I going to do with these people when I have to translate? Give to anyone who asks of you and do not turn them away whenever. And sure enough, he said, well, all I can do is translate it and go with it. And sure enough, when they read for the first time Jesus' words here in Luke chapter 6, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And one by one, these townspeople began to come to him and ask for his stuff. And little by little, he gave away every possession that he had until he was left with nothing. And the townspeople met on the other side of the town and they said, wow, any man who would do this must be from God. And they brought all his possessions back and the gospel ministry in that town took off. Why? Because there was somebody who believed in Jesus enough to let go of the things that they had. Now, all of us who are in ministry, all of us who are, are, are able to minister to people who need it, we have this balancing of we don't want to enable things that are wrong. I know for us as a church, we try to be responsible in our giving so that we're not creating crutches and enablements that shouldn't be there. All of us need to consider those kind of things, and we need to keep that in mind with a passage like this. But where we're also drawn into is realizing that every opportunity, every conversation, every area of need is a moment by which God might use that thing to do what our words will not. And so giving and, and sharing and, uh, and, and being merciful and gracious is something God can do in a mighty, use in a mighty way. Love and mercy to those who are against us is one of the things that God's promised to bless in a special way. Number seven, it's been said that we're most like Satan when we accuse and we're most like God when we show mercy or when we forgive. It's also sometimes said that way. Mercy and forgiveness are very closely related. It's been said that we're most like Satan when we accuse. We're most like God when we show mercy. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to people who you expect to pay you back, what benefit is that? And on and on. But then he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expect nothing, and you'll be sons of the Most High, and your reward will be great. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Mercy is what we always desire for ourselves, but we don't always as freely want to give it to other people, right? And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves not being aligned with the heart of God, because God is merciful. There was a Polish pianist named Podruski. Around the turn of the century, not this last century, but the previous one, there were some college students who wanted to make some money, and they decided, if we can get Podruski to come play a concert at our college, we can charge enough where we'll make enough money to pay for our semester of school. And so Podruski's person, his agent or whatever, said, well, it'll take $2,000, which was a large amount of money back then. Some of you say, well, that's a large amount of money now, and I'll be right there with you. 
And so uh, for $2,000, you can get Podruski to come play. They said, we think we can, the college students said, we think we can do it. So they began to fundraise and sell tickets and everything else. When the day of the concert came, they went into Podruski's office after the show and he said, sir, I'm sorry, we've only been able to raise $1,600 and we'll owe you the other 400, but we promise to pay. Podruski, who was a Polish man, but had, you know, spoke good English said, I'm sorry, boys, that won't, that won't work. That's, that's too much. You keep the 400. Don't worry about that. What I want you to do is I want you to take all of your expenses out of that $1,600. And then I want you to take from the remainder 10% for each one of you for your hard work. And you give me whatever was left over. These two college students were blown away. And they said, wow, we'll never forget that. Well, Mr. Podruski went back to Poland, and not only did he continue to play the piano, uh, but he actually became uh, one of the, the government leaders for the country of Poland. And as the First World War began to break out, Poland had a, a very real need for food. And one of the countries that they reached out to was the United States. Podruski sent a letter and said, I need a massive amount of food. I don't know how many people can help us. Will you please help us? I know you've got a lot of needs and different things going on. Can you help us? To his amazement, he got a response that far more food than he had even asked for was going to be sent to the country of Poland. And he said, wow. He went to a, a dinner to thank those Americans who were in charge of uh, the sector of government that had made that decision. And Podruski walked up and he shook the hand of a man that he did not know he had met before. His name was Herbert Hoover. He would later become president of the United States. And he said, Mr. Hoover, thank you so much for your generous gift to our country. I don't know how to thank you. And Herbert Hoover looked back at him and he said, that's all right. You don't remember us, but a long time ago, you helped us out as well. He was one of those college students, and the mercy that Podruski showed to him affected not only Herbert Hoover's life, not only the partner that was there, not only Podruski's life, but the entire nation in a time of war and famine. You never know how God's going to use your mercy and grace shown to other people, because when we show mercy and grace, we're mirroring what Jesus Christ has done for us. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for a chance to be here to marvel at Jesus Christ, to celebrate him and to take hope in who he is and what he's done and what he wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. We thank you, Father, and we praise you for the mercy and the grace that's been extended to us, undeserved, unearned, that's never made sense. So, Father, we just ask that as your grace continues to find us, that we could be gracious and merciful to those that you've brought into our path, that you'd use that for your glory and your honor so that people would know the Lord Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Father, we ask these things in your son Jesus' name. We thank you and praise you. Amen.